0: This week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, my daughter Catherine Jenkinson is the co-host, fresh from Oxford University, working there on a doctorate on the Tower of London in the age of Elizabeth I and James the First. But today talking about the only significant American ever incarcerated in the Tower of London, Mr. Henry Lawrence.
1: Well, the only American that we know of to be incarcerated in the Tower of London. It's an extremely interesting story. We're talking about how Henry Lawrence became an important prisoner, sort of central in a certain way to negotiating peace between what would become the United States of America and Great
0: Britain. We also talk about the sex scandal that rocked Jefferson's world in the 1790s in the Randolph family, allegations of infanticide, adultery, and defense of the seductive man by none other than Patrick Henry and John Marshall.
1: We're talking about that and so much more on this week's edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Thanks for having me, Dad.
0: You're most welcome. Thanks for being here. Join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour.
2: Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. Good day to you, Mr. President. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, education is something we've talked about in the past. We've talked about your schooling, about the requirements for a young man during your time. It's changed a lot, Mr. President. Uh, Nowadays, uh, Every child has the opportunity for education, and what is taught to them is is carefully um, planned out. How much do you think government should be involved in in the classroom, sir?
0: Not at all. Certainly not the national government. I, I don't believe that the national government has the slightest right to intrude itself into this uh, this important business. The state government very little. Uh, participation, local government, uh, a good deal. But, but let me explain the nature of it. You know, If I live on a plantation and you live on a plantation and five other people live on plantations and we're all in the same area, maybe we decide that it's not worth hiring a tutor for each of our farms, but let's build a school in a central location together. We'll do it on a weekend and we'll, we'll put up a building and then let's hire a tutor of mutual uh, satisfaction to all of us and have that tutor uh, teach our children 12 of them in a room or 15 of them in a room instead of a tutor here and a tutor there. And in doing so, we create savings of costs and we uh, produce something like a, a agreed-upon curriculum. And we probably get a better teacher than we would if we were all just shopping around for one in Frontier, Virginia. And then we decide how much that's going to cost, the building, the books, what other, other materials we need, and the tutor, the teacher. And let's say that comes to $10,000 per year, and there are 10 of us, Then each of us pays uh, $1,000. So we then voluntarily come together and contribute mutual funds for the success of this enterprise, that's how it should happen. Education is a, is a decidedly local business and the state might wish to create funds to support education and it, it can produce colleges and universities or, or trade schools, but the state I don't think should intrude itself into Albemarle County and tell the citizens of that county how to educate their children. I think it would be fair to say, correct me if I'm wrong,
2: that you are a proponent of the rights of states above that of the federal government. It would seem, sir, that you're a proponent of the rights of townships and villages above those of the states.
0: Yes. Yes, I am. Uh, I certainly am a believer in the Tenth Amendment, that those powers not delegated to the national government, belong instead to the states and to the people. And I feel that at the state level also, that we should divide and subdivide our republic until it's reduced to manageable units, townships, or or what I sometimes even called ward republics. And their business is to educate our children. So let's just say, just for the point of of discussion, that I believe that the earth is 4,000 years old and that the account in the book of Genesis of the creation is true and that it's indisputable. If I wish to teach my children that, I have every right to teach my children that. A school has no right to say, your father is wrong. We're going to teach you that the earth is 14 billion years old, and that's the curriculum. And what we as experts decide— uh, will have the authority of the state and w- and what individual families believe is unimportant for the purposes of public education. I regard that as a form of tyranny, sir, that if if I want to say that the moon is made of blue cheese, however idiotic that might be, I have every right to teach my children in the manner that suits me. Goodness,
2: Mr. President, we're talking about the minds of children. Shouldn't they be kept open, uh, knowing that we'll never know everything accurately?
0: Well, of course. In my own case, I would teach my children to be critical thinkers, to be tolerant, to have open minds, to look at the world through a whole range of different lenses, to, to doubt their own certainties. I believe you have every right to teach your children in that manner. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are most welcome, sir. Welcome to a special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm Clay Jenkinson. The semi-permanent guest host of the Jefferson Hour is taking the week off, but we have a very special guest host back by popular demand, Miss Catherine Missouri Walker Jenkinson. My daughter, and now a graduate student at Oxford University. Welcome, Catherine.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: People have been writing in and asking about you, you know, because you're often mentioned on this program, and you have a, I think, a, a reputation, whether it's well deserved or not, for wit and sometimes even snark. And I refer uh, to your memory of the time you said that uh, David Swenson was a sycophant, and I think
1: I'm, I'm just positive that that was not I who said that. I would never, I would never speak in such a way about a person as esteemed as David Swenson.
0: But I thought you were still a little miffed at him because of the time they made so much fun of us when we were singing a Latin Christmas hymn.
1: Never have I felt such betrayal as when someone in my family, I won't say who, I am just happen to be sitting across from him in the barn today, decided that, oh, wouldn't it be great if we sang a Latin Christmas carol for an episode a few years ago and already when this idea was posed to me, I knew it was a horrible idea, given that I know that in our family we lack musical prowess, let's say. And so anyway, I went along with it as the dutiful daughter that I am. What and was
0: the song, in fact?
1: Adeste Fidelis.
0: Come, all ye, oh, come faithful. all ye faithful.
1: And so we practiced, you know, we toiled, but it was nothing that could ever have prepared us to walk into the studio with Swenson Because Swenson...
0: They ridiculed us and they browbeat us.
1: Swenson once said to me, find your note, Catherine. And never have I experienced such
0: humiliation. We almost walked out. We were going to walk out.
1: I began laughing uncontrollably so as not to collapse onto the floor and cry. It was...
0: You know, they're professionals. They do music, audio, and they have a well-deserved reputation for the quality of the music that comes out of Makoche studio and so I can I, I can understand, but it was a pretty serious blow to your ego and to mine, and I'm surprised, frankly, that you're back at all.
1: It was all I could do to recover. I will say it ruined Christmas and I haven't celebrated since
0: yeah, exactly. And but now Jefferson, to keep make sure we do some talk about the third president of the United States, knew Latin perfectly. He knew Greek so well that he was reading Greek in Thucydides in the last weeks of his life, and I think you know what that means.
1: Yes, I know that that is an almost um, impossible task. It's just so incredibly difficult. I couldn't do it. It's amazing that he could.
0: As you know, even uh, professional classicists at our elite universities have a difficult time with ancient Greek. Uh, Everyone gets a little. Dr. Johnson said nobody gets very much.
1: There are, of course, people who are specialists in this, but I could never pretend to even think about doing such a thing, it's just so difficult. And any time I've tried to read Greek, it's been with the dictionary and and trudging through.
0: So Jefferson uh, was adept at all these things. He was not a Christian in our sense of the term. He didn't celebrate Christmas. He probably didn't ever sing any Christmas hymns. He might have as a young man. What he's known for, however, is, is humming psalms. The psalms were set to music in that era by several eminent composers. So we know that much about Jefferson. But people have been asking about your work. So first of all, tell us what you're working on in your doctoral studies um, at Oxford University. And then we'll talk a little bit about the disruptions of the pandemic.
1: Oh, thank you. Yes, I'm currently in the midst of my doctoral project studying the history of incarceration in England, particularly the incarceration of state prisoners at the Tower of London, which has been very interesting. And, and my period is is before yours. I'm studying The 16th and early 17th centuries, but it's been absolutely fascinating and uh, something I've just become more and more interested in with each passing month.
0: Everybody knows the Tower of London uh, on the Thames, um, you know, famous for the Crown Jewels, for the the Guards, for the menagerie, but also a place of incarceration. And your work, I think, is on the 16th and 17th centuries.
1: That's right, and a little bit before them uh, also. But it's it's amazing what kind of state headquarters the Tower of London was. There's nothing that I can even think is a remote parallel in the United States.
0: It's, of course, well-known for some of the, the celebrated figures who have been incarcerated there. Sir Walter Raleigh, of course, spent, what, 13 years there?
1: More, and and, of course... Thomas More, Elizabeth I herself, Jane Grey, any number of people. Even Francis Bacon was there briefly. So it's a place that very many major, major players in English history were kept, but also a number of people that uh, weren't as famous or weren't as politically or religiously important at the time and yet still were kept in this very politically important place.
0: When we think of American prisons like Sing Sing... Fort Leavenworth, or Alcatraz, Uh, we all know these by names, but these analogies don't hold up, do they?
1: No, for one thing, conceptions of prison were different. The way that we think about confinement maybe even is different. At times, incarceration in the tower seems to have been just a means of, of keeping people out of trouble or keeping an eye on them and not necessarily punitive, although, of course, in many cases it was punitive, this is a very complicated subject about which a lot needs to be said and which can't be characterized easily.
0: It's a very special place. I've been there a number of times with you. Um, you've been there a number of times now uh, in your research. Uh, you, you and your grandmother were there a number of years ago and went to the place where Anne Boleyn was beheaded. Um, in some ways, as you say, it was sort of club fed. Uh, Raleigh had a library, 400 volumes. Other people had, had servants and cooks and... Sure and um, haberdashers and so on. And on the other hand, as you say, um, it was a dank and fetid prison with rats and vermin and the plague, and uh, it, we should never assume that there was luxury there.
1: No, absolutely not. And one of the only constants about tower incarceration was how frequently circumstances could change. And so someone might be permitted pen and paper at one point or access to servants and then a day later, be denied them and be denied visitors. So everything was subject to change. This was often used to coerce people into uh, behaving in a certain way or, or confessing to something or, or to being um, more amenable to the state's position or the crown's position on various things. But it was not ever a kind of uniform experience for anyone, even within a single prison sentence.
0: And the monarchs, some of them were very capricious, could throw people in the tower without what we would call due process or even habeas corpus. Um, Raleigh, for example, and his wife uh, were tossed into the tower for eloping, for marrying without Elizabeth's permission. And so the, these are things that don't occur. In, in our culture, we have a very strong bill of rights and due process. Is is that, am I overstating this?
1: No, not at all. And in fact, in the way we think about incarceration in the United States in the 21st century is often to assume that people are given a particular prison sentence. So maybe you're sentenced to be in jail for five months or you're sentenced to prison for 10 years with the possibility of parole after X amount of time. Often that wasn't the case in early modern England. Someone might be thrown into the tower at the king's pleasure, or at the queen's pleasure, without any idea of when uh, a release might be possible. And of course, often people were held at the king's pleasure, at the queen's pleasure, without any idea of when release might be possible. And even though we might think that in the 21st century United States, that's not the case, of course, there are instances where this has occurred, including in the case of some people held at Guantanamo Bay, where they've been kept without any idea of when due process will be afforded to them. But On the whole, it's rather rare from a modern perspective.
0: All right, before we go to break, people are wondering about COVID. What's the current status in London, in England, and in Oxford of the uh, coronavirus?
1: As of now, I should be able to return, quarantine, until my day two test results come back and then resume normal life. But... Things are definitely changing uh, by the day, by the hour, and I'll be checking the BBC as often as possible.
0: But you were effectively on lockdown for a number of months.
1: Yes, from after Christmas in 2020 until late spring of 2021, it was extremely severe lockdowns without uh, the possibility of meeting people outside of your household indoors. And for a time, one could only meet with a single other person outside And it was a very interesting experience, much different, I think, from the first lockdown, because when coronavirus first appeared in the UK and the United States, the university had largely asked people to leave and return home if possible. And so I had come to North Dakota, as you know, to stay with you. And we spent the first few months together uh, working from home. And that was really interesting. And I think that that was such a novel experience, difficult, 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 but something we had never experienced before. By the time that later lockdowns came, it became harder and harder to experience the isolation. I don't know how you felt. I know that there weren't the same lockdowns here, but the isolation is extremely difficult uh, as everyone has experienced over the past two years. And
0: We wouldn't want to make too much of this, but there is this almost a sense of incarceration that you were in a a very small room for a long number of months in England with limited access to the street. Um, you know, obviously that's fundamentally different from being locked up by the state. But I know you felt deep confinement.
1: Well, yes, and as you as you say, obviously this is very different. I don't want to compare the two, but I do recall when I returned to the UK in September of 2020 and had to isolate for 14 days and couldn't go to the grocery store for a walk outside and I couldn't stay at my actual flat. I, I was staying in college housing in another place and my meals were being delivered to me and I was writing about the particularities of living in the tower and I thought, wow, you know, this is this is not anything close to incarceration and it's extremely difficult. And so I don't pretend to know what incarceration? Uh...
0: But you're you're playing it down, Catherine. I remember, for example, that you asked me to send you a file in a cake. I remember that you were you you were with blood, putting a calendar on the wall of your room. I mean, those things suggest wow. to me a certain incarceration. Well, I
1: don't pretend to know anything about the experience of true isolation, but I can say we've all known these quarantines to be very, very difficult, and it it's not clear whether. There's an end in sight.
0: We're all weary. We're all weary. We need to take a break. You're listening to a special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour with guest Catherine Jenkinson uh, in North Dakota for the moment, about to go to Kansas, and then back from Denver International to Heathrow in London. We'll be back in a minute. When we come back, I want to ask you about the most prominent American and possibly the only American ever kept as a state prisoner in the Tower of London. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Welcome back to this special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm Clay Jenkinson. We're recording this at the end of 2021. Surely, Catherine, one of the more disruptive years of your young life.
1: Absolutely. I can't remember a year like it.
0: I want to ask you a, a Tower-related question. So I was reading a biography of Lafayette, and we'll be doing a program on Lafayette with Lindsay Chervinsky here shortly, 10 Things About Lafayette and i came across the name of henry lawrence a couple of times henry lawrence was from south carolina he lived between 1724 and 1792 and he was incarcerated in the tower of london and it became something of a an international incident uh, and i asked you if you would if you would prepare some thoughts about this what do you know about this
1: when you told me about this i found it incredibly interesting. And and as I've read about Henry Lawrence over the past few days, I've been struck by what an interesting case this is and what an important part of the American Revolution that is rarely discussed, or at least not discussed in what I've read, which admittedly is very little.
0: People will know the name Lawrence from John Lawrence, who is a close friend of Alexander Hamilton. If you've seen Hamilton or then read Uh, Chernow's excellent biography of Hamilton in the wake of that extremely popular musical, which you and I saw together in London not so long ago, they will know the name John Lawrence, who died during the war. And John Lawrence, as you know, was uh, an emancipationist.
1: Yes, he was, but his father was not the same. And Henry Lawrence was a a very powerful South Carolina uh, statesman who later became president of the Continental Congress. But... He may be best known for his participation in the Austin and Lawrence Company, which was a Charleston human trafficking company. He was was a terrible enslaver.
0: Maybe the most significant slave trader in the U.S.
1: And knowing this has to become the starting point from which any future conversation about Henry Lawrence begins, because it is just truly shocking, even when considering Lawrence within the 18th century itself.
0: We're talking about thousands, many thousands of enslaved people who are being brought to the US or trafficked by Henry Lawrence and his uh co-conspirators and his his company. And uh, you know, Jefferson's father-in-law, John Wales was a slave trader. And there's always a kind of a a bad odor around his character because of that. And he was a minor figure compared to someone like Henry Lawrence. And so, what's so interesting, Catherine, is that 15 years ago we would have said, Oh, uh, Henry Lawrence was from South Carolina. He's the president of the Continental Congress. Yes, he was a slave owner and a slave trader. Now let's get on to the story. But you're saying we can't do that anymore.
1: No, absolutely not. I don't think so. And we have to consider his role in enslaving people in every conversation about Henry Lawrence because he can't be considered outside of that fact. We are talking about someone whose behavior was so egregious and more than that, he was profiting off of this behavior. And so little else need be said about Henry Lawrence.
0: He winds up in the Tower of London and one would hope that the British put him there because he was a human rights violator, but that wasn't the situation at all. What what led to his arrest his, um what's called trial, and his incarceration.
1: Well, it's a really fascinating story. So Lawrence had been president of the Continental Congress, which I'm trying to think of a parallel. Uh, I don't know. Would you say it's akin to being the president of the United States or at least to being a, a Senate majority leader or a,
0: a speaker well, of the of House,
1: and uh, say, a Nancy Pelosi?
0: He was the top elected official in the country, even though it wasn't under our new constitution.
1: Extremely... Important political figure. And so after he had finished that appointment, he was participating in the
0: He was a diplomat.
1: He was a diplomat and he was being sent to Holland to negotiate uh, a
0: alone for the US.
1: Alone for the US in the American Revolution. And as he was on his way in September of 1780,
0: off the coast of Newfoundland and the Outer Banks.
1: The ship that he was on was captured and he was taken by the British to England straight away. And by the time he arrived on October 5, 1780, he spent a night at Scotland Yard, and knowing what a politically important or important prisoner that this would be, Lawrence is then transported to the Tower of London, where he was held until December 31st of 1781, so a full 15 months. 15
0: months in the Tower.
1: 15 months in the Tower, said to be the only American prisoner in the Tower of London, of course. What does it mean to be an American during this era? There are a lot of questions.
0: Let me back you up here. You know, so he's going to be um, there because he's uh, suspected of treason, since the British see him as a British subject who has betrayed his uh, allegiance to George the Third and, and the British Parliament and the British nation. But he was carrying papers that were semi-official that would have made him um, a. a a diplomat in, in the Low Countries, in the United Provinces, as they were called, or Holland. When the British approached the ship on which he was traveling, he tossed his papers overboard, hoping that he could get them uh, sunk into the Atlantic Ocean. What happened?
1: Well, it didn't work out. That's what's so amazing is even even in his attempts to save the diplomatic mission, knowing that he would be captured, he couldn't save these papers. And so some of them, at the very least, were captured by the people who took him. And they were then used uh, to kind of throw a wrench into the negotiations between the Americans and the Dutch. And so an ambassador from England to William V, the Prince of Orange, presented these papers to the Prince of Orange and created a huge diplomatic incident, not only between the Continental Congress and Holland, but also between Britain and Holland itself, which later led to a complete breakdown in Anglo-Dutch relations. In fact,
0: on the basis of this, Britain declared war on the United Provinces. So the four, it's called the Fourth Dutch War. So he's going to be captured. He's smart enough to throw the papers overboard. Some of them sank, but a trunk containing the bulk of them floated. And the British rescued the trunk, found the papers, extremely incriminating, and also showed that their long-time trade rival and enemy, Holland, was now maybe going to side with the American patriots. And so he's in a pile of trouble.
1: Absolutely. But here's what's so interesting, Dad, is Lawrence is taken to England. He's thrown in the Tower of London on October 6th. He's held as a close prisoner. He wasn't allowed access to pen and ink. He wasn't allowed visitors, even though his children were educated in England. And so his son, Henry Lawrence Jr., was actually nearby and could come to see him. But when he was first held... He couldn't tell anyone, so we're relying on lots of different ways for this information to get out, keeping in mind, of course, that this information has to get back across the Atlantic for the Continental to Congress to know what's going on. So this takes place on October 6th. Then, within five days, Thomas Diggs, who is a sort of a man from Maryland, living in England, sort of unclear what his role is, but he's an informant to John Adams, who at this point is in Amsterdam, writes to John Adams, tells him what's going on, tells him that Lawrence has been taken to the tower. And within two months, the information reaches the United States. And James Madison is writing about it on December 12th saying, oh no, Henry Lawrence has been captured. This is incredible how quickly this information moves.
0: All the Americans know is they sent him off to England. They presume he's going to arrive safely. They don't know for months that he's been captured. That he's now in the Tower of London. Uh, we don't have; it's not the, there aren't the same international protocols of, of information, and of course the communication systems were exceedingly primitive at this time. Just a couple of things about his incarceration: fifteen months is a long time. The war is nearly over at this time, as you rightly said. He was sort of a—he wasn't pro-British, but he was not an ardent American rebel either. His children were there. He had shown some signs of being a loyalist, maybe, or at least not being completely convinced of the righteousness of the American cause. He's not thrown into a a jail cell, is he?
1: No, he's not. In fact, he's sent to live with the family of a yeoman warder at the tower who lived within the tower's walls. What's a yeoman warder? It's kind of a prison guard. That's an oversimplification, but a person who worked and lived at the tower. And so Lawrence is sent to live with this family, but he has no access to his money Ostensibly, he's a very wealthy man, but he has no access to his money, and so at a certain point, word gets out, and Edmund Jennings writes to John Adams, who luckily is not far away, Benjamin Franklin is also not far away, and says – we need 100 pounds to Henry Lawrence so that he can, because he was required to pay for his his food, his necessities, his candles, anything that he needed, he had to pay for, but he had no way to pay for it. Eventually money gets to him and he's he's later granted access to visitors. But at least at the beginning of his incarceration, when his visitors came, including his son, the visitors could only be there when there were two members of tower staff present. And at first, the visits could only be for 30 minutes. They might be extended to an hour. But these are really close and tight uh, regulations. And so John Adams is, of course, outraged when he learns of this because there's no precedent for this.
0: Plus, he's in Holland, which is suddenly on the hot seat because of their apparent complicity uh, in providing loans to the cash-starved American cause.
1: Absolutely. And so Adams is writing to the Continental Congress, encouraging them to help Lawrence, but also trying to figure out what's going on. He's later appointed to broker the the loan with uh, the Dutch.
0: And he does very successfully. He
1: does very successfully, but there's also the sense of what's going on. and In a certain perspective, I think that The incarceration of Henry Lawrence grants a certain legitimacy to the American cause that he's being held as a state prisoner, even though he's being held for treason. Rather than as just
0: some common rebel off the streets. The word finally gets back to the Americans. This stirs the pot greatly, and suddenly everyone is trying to find a way to clarify what's happened and, and get him released, and it takes a long time.
1: What's even more curious is that London newspapers are reporting on the conditions under which Lawrence lives, and he becomes sort of a celebrity, and efforts are made so that people can come see him in this degradation of incarceration, and and the papers are saying what's going on, how he's being treated. His family is appealing to John Adams, to Benjamin Franklin, asking for any possible help that they might be able to provide knowing that their father is in this really impossible situation. And and Adams, it seems, maybe doesn't even know what to do. He says to Thomas Diggs on October 14th, 1780, upon what principle is it that they can find Mr. Lawrence as a prisoner of state? To treat a citizen of a state thus completely in possession of sovereignty de facto is very extraordinary. Do they mean to exasperate America and drive them to retaliation? Are these people governed by reason at all or by any principle, or do they conduct according to any system, or do they deliver themselves up entirely to the government of their passions and their caprice? I saw so many contradictions in the papers about Mr. Lawrence. I hoped your first account was a mistake. He then goes on and says, please pray inform me constantly of everything relative to him and let me know if anything can be done for him by way of France or any other.
0: The brilliance of John Adams is shown here the sense of of wounded national pride and outrage that we felt that this was happening. You can hear it in John Adams' letters there, that this should not be. This is not how great nations treat even their enemies. And so he's doing everything he can, first to understand what's happened. And he's saying, I hope this is just a rumor. But he's then saying, this is an appalling breach of of international civic etiquette.
1: It's amazing. And it's shocking that even though So few privileges were allowed to Lawrence. at various times. He's allowed to walk around the tower, walk abroad. He's able to uh, have access to something to write with or to see his son and other visitors. These privileges are often taken away. And so he writes a kind of journal in pencil, and that journal still exists and later became a narrative that he wrote about his time uh, in this period and a little bit later because by the time he was released at the end of 1781, Almost immediately, after a sojourn to to Bath to go, because he became very ill. Well, so Bath hour. is a
0: is a is a, a spa town in southern England,
1: right? And so after that, he's immediately called back to help broker peace, and it's it's shocking. I mean, no rest for the weary, uh, but he doesn't even know it because again, the information transfer is really difficult, and the way that his release was secured is fairly complex. Uh, By the middle of 1781, there were already efforts uh, to exchange the general John Burgoyne, if I am correct, for Lawrence, a kind of a British prisoner of state for an American prisoner. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Uh, Eventually, it's worked out that they will exchange General Cornwallis, perhaps the most politically important person that the American troops
0: captured. Cornwallis, who surrendered at Yorktown, thus effectively ending the Revolutionary War, he becomes a state prisoner in the U.S. um, after his surrender. This often happens in international relations. There's finally an exchange.
1: But key to all of this are John Adams and Benjamin Franklin, who are the closest nearby, among others, but the most important people nearby, and who shockingly then are appointed along with Jefferson and Lawrence and John Jay are appointed as commissioners for the peace. And so it begins right after his release. They're back to work. He didn't stay, didn't accept the appointment. He worked briefly, came back to the United States.
0: He dies in 1792. Probably his health was never quite right after that.
1: But it's an amazing story to think about the effect that this could have had on the the Continental Congress's relationship with the Dutch and the effect that it did have on the relationship between the British and the Dutch.
0: Captain, a couple things that you said that really interest me. Number one, he had to pay his own upkeep. At this era, prisoners, including prisoners for debt, had to pay as if they were at a Super 8 hotel. They had to pay their upkeep.
1: It's amazing. We don't think about it in that way, but it was a totally different conception of incarceration. In fact, I'm wondering... I don't know anything about early American prisoners. Is there, is there anything you can say about American prisons?
0: Indeed, Catherine, there's plenty to say about the status of American prisons at this time. How can we not know this story?
1: It's shocking. I'm sure that people do know this story, but I've never even heard about it, and it's absolutely fascinating. I want to know more. And as I was reading about Henry Lawrence, I found some of the letters James Madison wrote in cipher, which is just so exciting. It's it's hard to even imagine what this period was like in uh, Virginia or in any of the colonies, because it must have been absolutely terrifying and exhilarating at the same time.
0: So. So he's paying his own way. So there has to be a whole arrangement to get this rich man some money to pay these things. That There isn't a, a, an established international way of, you know, there's no ATM machine in London at the time. And he's uh, become this kind of figure that the Americans are obsessing about. Madison and Jefferson have worked out this cipher wheel, this secret communication thing that was actually so good that it lasted in some um, arenas until World War Two. How do we know the story? There are plenty of documents, of course, and John Adams becomes a key figure here. But Lawrence wrote a memoir of some sort.
1: Right, so he had his journal, and then he also wrote a narrative of that period going going forward a few years later even. But I don't know much about that or its publication history, but what I do know is that he was not always thought of as a hero. And people like James Madison were very skeptical about Lawrence and, and wondered whether he was, in fact, loyal to the Continental Congress or whether he had been persuaded to support the British. And at times it seems that he had, and we know the efforts were made to try to turn him because that's how important. The he
0: British was. wanted him to become yes. a state spy for them maybe, which of course is all too frequent in war. Just one last thing. So talk about the family dynamics that we've barely touched on. Father is the most significant slave trafficker in the new world, well, at least in the United States. Son is an emancipationist. Father has an ambiguous status of whether he is truly on the patriot side. There's question even in the mind of the great James Madison about this. The son John Lawrence is an ardent patriot who fights alongside Alexander Hamilton.
1: But additionally, John Lawrence is also sent as an envoy from the Continental Congress to France. And so this is shocking how many members of Henry Lawrence's family were nearby uh, the continent during his time, or in England itself during his time as a prisoner. It's really that uh, makes you think that the world was much smaller than it seemed.
0: You're listening to this special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, uh, basically about uh, incarceration. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about American prisons at the time, and then we'll close, Catherine, with the story, this amazing story of the sex scandal in the Randolph family that touched Thomas Jefferson's life through his daughter, Martha. You're listening to a special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
1: everybody and welcome back to the show. I'm Catherine Jenkinson. I'm really happy to be back here speaking to my dad, Clay Jenkinson, about the history of incarceration. We were just talking about the American prisoner, Henry Lawrence, in the Tower of London in 1780 and 1781. But before we broke, I was asking you, Dad, about prisons in the United States. And we were talking about paying your own way in prison and paying for your own food and paying for anything you might need. But isn't it the case that uh, some of the most important members of the revolutionary era in the United States, or what became the United States, I should say, wound up in debtor's prison?
0: Two of them in particular. um, I should say not all prisoners have to pay their own way in American history, but debtors did until 1833 and in some cases later. And in reading about this to prepare for the program, I see that there is now a national concentration on the renewal of this, that now we're seeing this happening again. Really? Yes, and confiscated bail, and that this is, because of the privatization of our prisons and because of the coffers are empty all over the country in the last decade or more, people who are in prison for bankruptcy and, and, and other debts are increasingly being made to pay for their own incarceration, and this is becoming a really serious national problem.
1: Wow, that's really shocking.
0: I was shocked as I had no idea. Which which just tells us how little we really know, right? We all watch the cop shows. We we see trials. Uh, we hear about about prisons and prison life. It's it, I'm sure that there's a there's an element of truth in these things, but there, of course, is so much caricature. And I think that it would be impossible for us to really know what it is like in the range of American prisons
1: absolutely. And it also speaks to our own failure to look into these things in a real way. It's easy to watch NCIS or Law Long and Order. order um, it's harder to to read about actual experiences. And so maybe that's something that we can do in 2022 and come back and, and talk more should. about.
0: I think we should. And, and we'll have you back on. So two people in particular, James Wilson, who was from Pennsylvania, Scottish educated, um, one of the greatest members of the uh, Constitutional Convention of 1787, and really the person who spoke most at the Constitutional Convention, and he was like Madison, a, a nationalist who wanted a stronger central government. He was eventually named to the U.S. Supreme Court as an associate justice. He went bankrupt and he was in debtor's prison while actively serving as a member of the United States Supreme Court. Wow. Isn't that amazing?
1: That's shocking.
0: James Wilson. Uh, I knew that he had gone to debtors' prison. These are all land speculators they get in over their heads. But to think that he's an associate member of the Supreme Court uh, is just uh, just shocking to me. The other one was Robert Morris, who's known as the financier of the American Revolution, and he did mighty and heroic work to keep us fiscally afloat, barely through the course of the revolution. He actually used his private credit at times. He was involved in a lot of behind-the-scenes murky things to get the kind of gunpowder and materiel that we needed to carry on the war. Um, He's a hero of the American Revolution. He's a close friend of George Washington. In fact, when the Constitutional Convention occurred, Washington reluctantly attended. He was going to stay in a hotel like the others. Robert Morris met him when he entered the city and said, no way, you're staying with us. And he, and George Washington then stayed in the Morris Mansion Uh, During the the deliberations between May and September of 1787, Morris is um, an incalculably important figure in in the less interesting but extremely important financial side of the American Revolution. He was investigated after the war for maybe conflict of interest, peculation of some sort. He was cleared and praised. But then he turned from public financing to land speculation in the West. And at one time, he owned land all the way, millions of acres, millions of acres, all the way from New York to Georgia. He, like many others, thought that there would be you know, huge immigration, that he would make profits from this. He didn't. It all collapsed. And he spent three years in debtor's prison, in the Prune Street prison in Philadelphia, where he had to pay his own way. And, and friends helped him out through this. But think of it, two of the most important figures of this era, again, largely unknown in popular history, wind up in debtor's prison. And, you know, if you think of the paradox of this, my child, you're in debtor's prison because you can't pay your bills, and then they charge you for being in debtor's prison. So you think, it's so wildly irrational, you would think that they would see through this. It wasn't until, in the United States, until after the War of 1812, which caused a whole lot of uh, wild debts and bankruptcies, that the government... Somewhat later, in 1833, the U.S. government abolished making prisoners pay for their own upkeep. But it was still, because of the dual nature of our sovereignty, it was still the case in many states into the 20th century.
1: Well, I think you're forgetting one of uh, the most famous debtors of the Mr. 18th J. and 19th century, Thomas Jefferson, who clearly avoided this fate but did not avoid becoming in increasing debt with each passing day during the later period of his life. So how does someone like Jefferson avoid a debtor's prison, and yet others do not?
0: Yes, he died helplessly in debt. He was in debt all of his adult life. It's it's not a very honorable story, as you know, because he owed everybody, didn't always pay it back. He was check-kiting. He was borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. He would put people off for years. He was involved in a whole range of litigation. He was selling enslaved people at times or renting them out to others to make sure that he could make his debt payments. Once he died in 1826, the whole thing collapsed like a house of cards. His grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, had to sell slaves and divide families in order to just meet the obligations of the American court system.
1: It's one thing to be in debt. But thinking about the ways that the consequences, yet again, of Jefferson's actions played out for people who had done nothing wrong, who had not spent thousands of dollars on books, and yet faced the incredible enormity of the consequences of the actions of Jefferson's life is shocking.
0: You're so right. It used to be thought that, okay, Jefferson died in debt, but there were no pensions for former presidents, and he had lost wealth during the wars, and that he had had to pay for part of his own, upkeep well, ambassador to France, and so on and so forth. And so that was the old view of it. The second round of that was that, and this put his daughter Martha in great difficulties because she actually did have to live on some public charity after his death. There was a subscription taken up for her. She moved to New England. Think of that. I mean, here's this Renaissance man with every luxury that humans can know who lived like a, a, a Renaissance prince or like Re- Leonardo da Vinci, and he dies leaving his daughter destitute. That was the second story. But the third story that almost never gets mentioned is that then this meant that the slave community, the enslaved community, had to be sold at auction to pay urgent bills and that the grandson, who didn't want to do it, had to divide families and so on. So you think it's one thing for Jefferson, as you say, one thing to live beyond your means, people do, it's a second thing to cheat your friends, as he did in some of the, like William Short gave him $10,000. And then later in life, Jefferson's like, oh, really? I owe you 10000 And so on. He was doing that with, with Kosciuszko, the Polish patriot, and others. That's not very honorable. Then to think of his daughter, which sort of breaks your heart, and then to think that there are these nameless people who worked for him and, as you say, lived well, in with nothing.
1: Let me stop you there. They were not nameless. They were nameless to him. Yes. Which says everything about Jefferson. These were people.
0: And and he does have rosters of names and so on. My point is that history has tended to ignore them and ignore their plight and to talk about, oh, poor Jefferson dying bankrupt, when in fact he was in a position to know that his indebtedness was going to cause the whole thing to collapse. And yet every couple of years he has this sort of cold sweat nightmare he wakes up the next day and says I've got to make ends meet I've got to you know reduce costs I've got to have better crops I've got to and that lasts for just a few weeks then he's ordering more Bordeaux wine
1: it's a shocking story and it discredits him in so many ways
0: all right so let's move on so the Americans figured it out that it's not intelligent to charge debtors in prison for their upkeep and so they, the Americans slowly moved into a much more responsible situation today. I remember reading a Thomas Friedman book about what makes America such an incredibly vibrant world power and he says our bankruptcy laws are so good because that means that someone in Silicon Valley will invest ten million dollars in something that fails we we have we have ways of getting people back on their feet farmers citizens, people who own small businesses. We know our system is is essentially this and i've I've been through it in in, in, in indirectly in my life that someone declares bankruptcy, then the courts figure out how much can we get them to pay, and then the rest has to be discounted or written off, and then the person is allowed to keep the house and move on with his or her life. That's a humane system of bankruptcy procedures, which did not exist in the time of Thomas Jefferson.
1: But what about other sorts of prisoners? We're speaking about debtors. What about other people in colonial Virginia or in the early United States that might have been sent to prison for any number of reasons.
0: Well, that's great. Let's turn in the, in the short time that we have left to this scandal. No one went to prison over this, but it's a fascinating story. So Jefferson's oldest daughter, Martha, marries her cousin, Thomas Mann Randolph, shortly after the Jeffersons come back from France. Her husband, Thomas Mann Randolph, has two sisters, Judith and Anne. Anne is betrothed, but not married to a man who dies before they can get married. Judith is married to a man named Richard Randolph. So Randolph's marrying Randolph. So Judith and Richard Randolph are, are married now. Anne, who's nicknamed Nancy or Nan, starts spending a lot of time with Richard Randolph after the death of her betrothed, and he's helping her and you know emotionally comforting her and counseling her and so on. This
1: is her brother-in-law.
0: This is her brother-in-law. Heads start to turn and eyebrows are raised and people are thinking this is getting a little bit too cozy. She starts showing signs maybe of being pregnant, but she's wearing clothing to hide it. There's a dinner party at a neighboring plantation where she gets sick during the party, goes up to her room, the room that she's staying in, and the people who are there hear screams through the night The next morning, they find that the sheets have blood and that there's blood on the staircases, and nobody is quite sure what happened. The enslaved people at this plantation do know what happened, because Richard Randolph, in the middle of the night, brought out this infant, probably dead. It was probably stillborn.
1: Why do you say that?
0: Because that's what she said later in life when she wrote a memoir of this. Okay. So let's just assume that's true. Sure. Richard Randolph disposes of the body in a woodpile, in a woodlot on the estate. The enslaved people see this and report it. This blows into one of the great sex scandals of the time. Richard Randolph is indicted.
1: On what grounds?
0: Infanticide. Okay. He hires the best lawyers in the Commonwealth of Virginia, John Marshall. Wow. U.S. Supreme Court Justice for 34 years, not yet a Supreme Court Justice. And Patrick Henry, who's semi-retired. And Henry is like the great defense lawyer. Think of the great defense sure. lawyers you've ever heard of. And he comes out of semi-retirement, and they represent Richard Randolph in the preliminary hearing. It he never goes to full trial. And Henry is masterful. Because as you know from watching cop shows or reading, no body. The body is never discovered. So they only have circumstantial evidence. She could have been hemorrhaging for some other reason. Nobody can tell that she gave birth. And here's the, here's the rub. Once again, Catherine, we get back to the problem of race and slavery in American history. Under Virginia law, enslaved people could not testify against a white person. What? Under Virginia law, slaves, enslaved people could not testify against a white person under any circumstance. So even though the only people who actually know what happened except the principals would be willing to tell their story, they're barred from telling their story, which means that Richard Randolph is acquitted, that it doesn't go to full trial because they can't prove it. All they have is circumstantial evidence. And he says, you know, she was hemorrhaging. Because of this, however, it just gets more interesting. Nancy, Anne, and her sister Judith, and Judith's husband Richard are now uh, ostracized in Virginia for this incredible scandal. Nancy is so um, marginalized by this, so discredited, that she actually leaves Virginia and goes to New York, something that no Virginians really ever do. She tries to be a schoolteacher, can't make money. She's destitute. She's observed by none other than Governor Morris, and he observes this poor, destitute, misguided sinner. They fall in love, and he marries her. Governor Morris, Alexander Hamilton's other best friend, marries this woman, you know, she's sort of like the Scarlet Letter, and they wind up getting married.
1: What a story.
0: So here's where Jefferson comes in. Jefferson's daughter, Martha, as you might expect, is really upset by this story because she is the wife of Thomas Mann Randolph, one of the siblings. Of course. And she's the sister-in-law of both Judith, who's been betrayed, and Nancy, the woman who was pregnant. And she says this about this case to her father. The subject of it has been one of infinite anxiety, both to Mr. Randolph, her husband, uh, and to myself for many months. And though I am too sensible of the illiberality of extending to one person the infamy of another to fear one moment that it can reflect any real disgrace upon me in the eyes of people of sense, yet the generality of mankind are weak enough to think otherwise. And it is painful to an excess to be obliged to blush for so near a connection. I know it by fatal experience. And as for the poor, deluded victim, woman is here seen as a victim of the seductions of Richard Randolph. And as for the poor, deluded victim, I believe all feel much more for her than she does for herself, which is an 18th century way of saying she's shrugging it off. So you can imagine the embarrassment of Martha, right?
1: Of course. The whole story leaves a lot of questions unanswered about the nature of what happened. It's... uh... It's terribly sad.
0: Here's what Jefferson writes back. It has given me great uneasiness because I know it must have made so many others, i.e. you, unhappy, and among these Mr. Randolph, your husband, and yourself. Whatever the case may be, the world has become too rational to extend to one person the acts of another. Everyone at present stands on the merit or demerit of their own conduct. I am in hopes, therefore, that neither of you feel any uneasiness but for the pitiable victim, Nancy, whether it be of error or slander. In either case, I see guilt in but one person, Richard Randolph, and not in her. For her, it is the moment of trying the affection of her friends when their commiseration and comfort become balm to her wounds. I hope you will deal them out to her in full measure, regardless of what trifling or malignant people may say or think, never, listen to this, never throw off the best affections of nature in the moment when they become most precious to their object. Translation, she needs your support now more than ever. Now, we might not see her innocence in quite the way that Jefferson
1: On the other hand, she may have very well been a victim. We don't know the nature of the encounter. We have no details, so uh, I think we should suspend judgment on that, at least in my opinion. But I can't hear this story and feel anything but terribly upset because uh, what a horrible story.
0: But what a lovely letter that Jefferson wrote saying, the sins of the siblings should not devolve upon you and your husband.
1: Right. And we have only tapped the surface here. There's so much more to know about this. And I'm looking forward to reading about it further. Thank you so much for having me. It's always great to be back. And I appreciate the invitation.
0: Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
3: The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701 This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite Number 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. ¶¶